Hello, good evening. This is Ian Bezik, the host of Bezik on Stocks. As always, nothing here is investment advice. Everything's for education and entertainment purposes only. Thank you for joining me this evening. I think we're going to have a fun episode. Uh, looking forward to being with all of you tonight on Colin. I think this is just the right sort of topic for this format because I get to talk about some of the craziest investment stuff that we saw this year. All the memes, the cryptocurrencies, everything that went wild. And if I were writing this as an article, I would look at it and say, oh, some of this stuff's just too crazy and edit it out. But this is kind of my unfiltered take on some of the craziest stuff that we saw in, in 2021. That said, it's worth noting, I think when people look at memes, they say that everything just kind of went wild in January of 2021 when GameStop uh, went to the moon. Uh, but it's important to realize, looking back at this phenomenon, that it actually started last year uh, during COVID, actually almost two years ago now. Um, and I would argue that it began when the government, the U.S. government started mailing everyone money. Uh, and I would argue that the first real meme stock was Nikola, which is very timely because you may have seen Nikola was in the news today, uh, that the SEC uh, made them pay $125 million of fines for the fraud. Uh, you probably remember that Nikola was the company that infamously rolled a prototype truck down a hill when it actually didn't have a working engine inside uh, so that Trevor Milton and company could make it look like the uh, the company was ready to go. And they did one of the first big SPACs last year. Uh, the stock went from $10 to, to 60 I think. I don't have the chart in front of me, but I believe $60. Uh, the valuation went to tens of billions of dollars for nothing more than a prototype and a model vehicle that didn't work. As it would turn out, uh, and so that kind of came full circle today with them paying $125 million of fines, which is a pretty pathetic sum, if you ask me. Just 3% of their remaining market cap, and in reality, it was Nicholas Investors that paid that fine. Uh, it wasn't uh, Milton or the other people that were responsible. Uh, so I'd say that this was a very weak form of punishment, but it goes kind of with the whole meme mentality that, that people got to do very crazy stuff this year and this past last year as well and there weren't really that many consequences for it or at least so far and ironically a ton of the people involved in nickel actually made money the stock's still at ten dollars now so anyone that bought the SPAC at 10 has managed to break even which is uh, quite an achievement for a company that doesn't have any products or any success but anyway that was nickel and kind of how things came full circle uh the sense that the first time I got the sense something was going weird in the world, one of my best friends from college called me, uh, I think June of 2020, July of 2020 maybe, and said that he'd bought stock in Applebee's and JetBlue, and, and I'm good friends with this guy, he's never invested in his life, and he's like, I'm on Robinhood now, I'm looking at all these stocks, I'm like, how'd you decide on Applebee's and JetBlue, and he's like, well, they're the trending things on Robinhood. And it makes sense that with the economy that's going to reopen sometime, this stuff's going to go up. And for a while, he was messaging me all the time, like how much money he was making. And he was, in all honesty, I think he was probably making more on a percentage basis than I was in 2020 because he had no uh, reservations about trading. He would buy whatever he saw on the trending list and it was going up. And then sometime around winter, I think his trades stopped going as well. And, uh, and then he went back to work full time in the office and he stopped trading and moved on to other stuff. I think that was kind of the the sign to me that something was weird was going on in my life. The people that, that I'd known for a long time that had never cared about trading were suddenly getting in, kind of like the how in the dot-coms in 1999, everyone started caring about uh, stocks that before it had just been a specialist uh, thing and then the whole society got involved. Uh, I think that was the foundation for the meme phenomenon that we get this year. Everyone got money from the government. They were bored. They were stuck at home, didn't have anything to do. They said, oh, we're going to sign up for Robinhood, see what happens. Uh, sign up for Weeble, get on Reddit, get on Wall Street Bets. And like many new things, it was initially very successful and that's that's how you got enough of a meme community to get the, the AMC and the GME and the Dogecoin and everything that we got this year was people started trading in 2020. They made some money, said, this is good. Maybe I don't have to go back to work as quickly as I thought. or I can just kind of do something over the Internet and live off my meme trading. And so that and that created the, the seeds of the meme phenomenon. It's also worth pointing out that uh, there were two more crazy events leading up to those. I would say those were Hertz, which you may recall, and then Luck and Coffee. 
Hertz is a, a car rental company that went bankrupt, uh, but people bought it up on Robinhood and elsewhere despite it being bankrupt. And ironically, because so many meme people bought it up, the company was able to issue some stock, uh, even though the company was bankrupt. It was the first equity raised by a bankrupt company in U.S. history. Uh, and Hertz, due to the economy coming back in 2021, they actually ended up being able to exit bankruptcy and the meme traders that bought Hertz uh, and held on for a while actually made a lot of money. And this was virtually unprecedented in, in U.S. bankruptcy law that uh, people would make money buying a company that was billions of dollars underwater and actually get paid for it. Uh, and the same happened with Luckin. This was a Chinese company that wanted to be the Starbucks of of China, and they said they'd opened thousands of stores and were growing very quickly, and it turned out that it was all an accounting fraud, that they'd made up 75% of their revenues. The stock went from $50 to $2. That appeared to be the end of Luckin, but then people on Robinhood and on Reddit said, ah, we should buy this Luckin thing. Uh, maybe we'll come back. They drove it from $2, I think, to $10. The company delisted. Uh, Reddit kept buying. Like, it went back to $4, but then Reddit kept buying, pushed it up again. Then the SEC uh, fined everybody. They said that they weren't sure if the cash was there. Like, this company should have been dead, and yet the stock went back to like $10, $15. And so, once again, these memers that bought the stock at two bucks, three bucks after it went bankrupt made hundreds of percent for doing something that was totally, utterly illogical. And so, Reddit started getting this idea that, that they were bigger than the market when they got involved in a stock that that it didn't really matter what the fundamentals were or what CNBC said or what Seeking Alpha said. Or the, any sort of fundamental analysis didn't matter because they had more power than, than the market. That leads us to the, the events of January 2021, where you have the what I would call the big event. GameStop was trading at 2 or $3 during the, during the COVID crisis. The company looked like it was going bankrupt. It was losing hundreds of millions of dollars every year. Obviously, no one was going to their stores with the health emergency. The company had a lot of debt. Uh, it looked like a, a terminal zero. Just there's no reason for this company to exist in, in the modern times any more than there was for Radio Shack or, or your average mall retailer for something that has gone like uh, Tower Records or whatever, just an obsolete company. Uh, but obviously, the, the Reddit community felt differently. And... And they started buying, well, they kept buying, and the stock started pushing up, and then it was Elon Musk that pushed it from from being reasonably high to the stratosphere, because Musk said, wouldn't it be funny if the stock went up more? I think after Musk tweeted, uh, GameStop went from 80 to 200, basically in an hour, and ultimately went up to 500, then... Uh, the stock was halted. Robinhood stopped their traders from buying any more stock. The stock collapsed. Then it went up again. Uh, and this was kind of the big meme moment uh, that generated all the controversy. You had politicians getting involved. People like Ted Cruz and AOC were giving their opinions about what happened. Uh, and to this day, there continues to be a lot of debate over uh, whether what Robinhood did was right or wrong, whether parties like Citadel had committed any wrongs. Uh, created a controversy over naked shorting, uh, and so that was kind of when stock when the stock market reached the height of its uh, relevance to the popular narrative. Everyone had an opinion on these meme stocks, uh, and then you saw a variety of other uh, people trying to make other plays happen after that. Because obviously, when you can take one stock from two dollars to five hundred dollars, people wanted to see what else they could do. And so you had other names like Rocket, which is a mortgage uh, underwriting company. That stock went from $20 to $50 overnight, uh, primarily because people went on Wall Street bets and just started posting uh, Rocket emojis. Uh, nobody knew what the business did. or There was no fundamental analysis, just that the company had a cool name and that uh, they wanted to go to the moon. And so obviously this being 2021, the stock went up 150% the next day. Uh, but Rocket has since collapsed. I believe the stock's lost 75% of its value. Uh, some of the meme stocks would survive, though. Uh, AMC is uh, the one that's had the most impact. Uh, that one went from 2 to $20 during the initial squeeze. Then it dropped back to $4. Uh, and that appeared to be the end of it. But then the summer, it ran up to $70. So that was, uh, what is that, 3,000% off the lows. Uh, but now that stock has been trending downward in recent months, and I think it makes for the most interesting 
uh, example of where the the meme phenomenon is now, because uh, like I'd say in 2020, people were getting into the meme stocks because they thought they were going to make a lot of money quickly. It was something they could do to make money from home when they couldn't work. When when society was so uncertain, trading looked like an easy way to make money. And obviously in January 2021, the meme traders appeared to be smarter than the market. It wasn't hard to make money just buy GameStop when everyone else is buying GameStop. When Musk tweets, buy and you'll make money. Uh, and so AMC, it appeared to be doing the same thing again. Like the summer, it goes back up from $4 to $70. Everyone thinks they're going to make a lot of money quickly. Uh, and then the AMC community, uh, which I'll, I'll call them apes because they call themselves apes. I'm not being derogatory. That's their preferred verbiage. Uh, the ape community there uh, has been telling people that the stock will go to $100,000 or even perhaps a million dollars, calling it the mother of all short squeezes. Uh, and so they weren't content to take their profits when it went from four to 70, but rather they kept telling people that it's going to keep going to even higher levels. Uh, but now the stock's gone back to the twenties. Uh, and so I think it's worth addressing, uh, kind of what this means in terms of where the markets are, where trader mentality is now, and how we can make money off of that in terms of going against the crowd. Uh, as you may know, if you've, I uh, read my work that I'm one of, I think, the relatively few people that is not part of the APE community, but actually made money trading AMC stock this year uh, because I sold puts against the stock uh, because I know, obviously, the stock's overvalued. And I wouldn't want to own it. Uh, but you had equally, on the other side, people that were just irrationally betting against it. And so puts were extremely expensive. You had $5 puts selling for a dollar, which were like, how would the stock go back under $5? I was trading at 50. I sold $15 puts for $3, which was a 20% yield over six months. So more than 40% annualized. Uh, and that's the sort of way to make money on these things is uh, you want to look at these with a clear head, not take a side, because in this case, both sides were wrong, I would say, uh, and just ask yourself, how can I how can I make money from this as a rational economic actor? Which I realize is more difficult because these are, are memes and everyone's acting uh, more as gamblers than as investors. Uh, but there are opportunities to make money on this. I think there will be opportunities to make money on a lot of these memes or failed meme stocks in 2022. Uh, but it's worth addressing where the, the AMC community is today. I've listened to a ton of the AMC calls. I hang out in their community just to get a sense of, of what investors are. I, I probably shouldn't call them investors. But what these traders are doing, because they're driving a lot of capital, whether we like it or not. They're heavily involved in stocks like Tesla as well. And so it's important to know what a large part of the market is doing. Uh, and so why, why are people still interested in AMC today? At the heart of it, there's the populist rage, I would say. When you listen to people, they talk about the stories of how, how their families lost their homes in 2008 or they lost their jobs or how, how the rich people, which they always use Citadel and the, uh, Jamie Dimon, these people as figureheads for these these oppressive forces in society that are keeping them down. And I think that somehow buying the movie theater company is going to to shake up the system. Uh, listening to these calls, you see that these people don't understand how hedge funds work. And obviously, I worked at a hedge fund. Uh, I've got a pretty good idea of how these funds work. Uh, but they seem to think that there's some united... Uh, like party line where everyone in New York just calls each other <laughs> and plans coordinated operations against stocks which is utterly insane uh if there was going to be a mother of all short squeezes like the amc believers think that there would uh hedge funds would go along and make the money themselves uh, i know very few hedge funds that would reject taking a position that they would make money on I, if amc were really worth the sorts of money that or GameStop or any of these meme assets hedge funds would buy dogecoin or whatever they would buy any of these assets if they felt that there was good reason to think they were going up so hedge funds are not, some hedge funds do own AMC and the ones that don't own AMC, are, it's not any conspiracy or any of that. Uh, another thing I'd say is that they, they think all of this is Citadel and Melvin and everybody, but this trading actually makes money for Citadel and the market makers. Like the more trading you have, the more the market makers make from each side of a transaction. So the idea that they're going to bring down the system by going after, uh, going after a company like this is just incorrect 
and I'd say very broadly that it's very easy for professionals to create a or to channel in this case a herd. Uh, in this case, the AMC herd wherever it wants, and you're now seeing the AMC herd being led towards destruction because they keep buying uh, more stock and more options. And meanwhile, Adam Aaron, the CEO, is selling all of his stock. The CFO sold all of his stock as well. Like you've got a very gullible but loyal group of people trying to support this company. And if it were still January 2021, it would probably work. They'd probably be making money because at that point, everything meme related was going up. But now the memes are are out of energy. Uh, I think it's just, like I said, the conditions have changed. People have gone back to work. The government's not sending free checks to people anymore. Uh, economic conditions have changed. And so there's just not the same, there's not the same environment for these meme trades. Uh, and using it in the other, like the software stocks, the SPAC stocks, like things have really changed. Uh, but yeah, the AMC community continues to think that if they just keep the faith uh, that they're going to, they're going to make money. Uh, uh, I would compare it. I read a fascinating story uh, this week about a, uh, you'll see why I'm making this comparison in a second, about a megachurch pastor who bilked, uh, bilked some of his followers, selling them a financial scheme. Uh, Kirby John Caldwell was uh, sentenced to six years in prison and paid a fine of $4 million dollars because he sold some of his congressioners, uh, the bonds, the long defaulted bonds of the Manchurian Chinese Republic. So these were Chinese bonds uh, that had been issued by the government prior to World War II. Uh, and when the communists took over in, I believe, 1949, that Chinese government fled to Taiwan and those bonds became worthless. But this pastor, Mr. Caldwell, uh, bought up a large chunk of these bonds, like the paper physical bonds, and then began marketing them to his uh, congressioners, saying that they were going to produce, quote, exponential wealth uh, for people that bought them. Uh, uh, reading from the Department of, of Justice uh, filing against him, it's unclear whether he believed his own marketing. It seems like he may have felt that, that these bonds actually had value, uh, but the SEC had declared that, obviously, these bonds were worthless and were uh, mere memorabilia. And so the, the government brought him in for for fraud against his constituents. Uh, constituents. I'd say that AMC is a similar church for, for unbelievers. Uh, and if a lot of people don't aren't religious anymore, but people still have a desire to be part of something that's greater than themselves. And so I'd say that AMC, in a way, is kind of a cult for people that don't want to have a have a religious God, but would rather have a kind of secular devotion. Uh, as I said, I've spent a ton of time in the AMC community listening. You have your cherished beliefs, things like that. That uh, that naked shorting is why the stock is down, even though there's no evidence of that. The belief that dark pools are are the source of manipulation of the stock price. The belief that options are being used to suppress the stock. Um, and other beliefs about the future, like the streaming won't destroy their business, even though uh, anyone that's observing it rationally would see that they are. Uh, the AMC believers have duties uh, on their spaces calls. They're told to tell their friends and family about the opportunity in AMC stock. Uh, people urge them to go to the movies every week. Uh, they have an obligation to buy tickets for their friends and family. They have rituals. They join their nightly calls. People go there to cope when the stock's going down. In particular, there's more activity on the, the AMC Reddit and calls when the stock's not doing well, uh, which is kind of how people church attendance goes up during crises as well. So I'd say that kind of the AMC community has had a crisis recently. Uh, and now we're seeing the schism in the AMC community. Uh, if you've been paying attention, there was recently a falling out because a former hedge fund manager named Mark Cahodis was urging the AMC to issue non-fungible tokens, which is great, combining a meme with another meme. Uh, and he was pushing this idea for weeks, urging them to... He said that if AMC issued non-fungible tokens related to movies, that uh, this would cause a kind of an infinite short squeeze because there would be no way for people that were betting against AMC stock to to deliver these these non-fungible tokens. So he believed that this would cause a huge short squeeze and uh, kind of get revenge on Wall Street. His hedge fund, the, he made a bunch of bad trades in 2008 and he was forced out of business due to margin calls. And it seems he's had a chip on his shoulder trying to 
to exact revenge on Wall Street. And so this is like what I was saying, where people take advantage of uh, a professional, in this case, Cajotes, uh takes advantage of a group of gullible people, in this case, the AMC community. He's come in and tried to lead them toward this, towards this NFT idea. Uh, unfortunately for him, uh, he had presented it to the CEO, Adam Aaron. Adam Aaron talked to his lawyers, and his lawyers told him that this idea was illegal and would cause AMC to default on its debt. Obviously, Cahodes didn't take that well. He said that the CEO is useless and that whatever. He went on a crazy rant. He blocked me. He blocked tons of people on Twitter. Uh, he seems a little mentally unstable at the moment, but I hope he's doing well and feeling better soon. Uh, but yeah, this is the sort of thing that you see when, when times go rough. And I'd argue the meme trade is totally broken down. Uh, and when money was flowing, it all made sense. Everyone was making money. Times were good. Now, though, things are going down. There's no more stimulus. It's Christmas. People want to visit their friends and family. They want to buy gifts. People need money and nothing's working. If people invested in a nice diversified meme portfolio of, let's say, Dogecoin, Floki, Inu, AMC, and GME, they've lost a ton of money over the past six months. Uh, which brings us to crypto, which is another big meme. Uh, uh, yeah, so uh, there's a great tweet on a great article on CoinDesk a few weeks ago that said the crypto state of 22, uh, the crypto state of 2022. Sure, crypto is a Ponzi, but so is the U.S. dollar, which kind of gives you the idea that uh, that uh, people, even in the crypto community, know what's going on now is not really working. But hey, if, if as long as the as long as our pyramid scheme is working, why not join it? Uh, to be clear, and as a disclaimer, not all crypto is a Ponzi, uh, but a lot of it is, particularly out of the newer altcoins and, and meme tokens. Uh, and even tokens with great apparent utility, like Solana, which was one of this year's biggest winners, uh, because it's functional, it's, it, it makes it very easy to trade cryptocurrency assets at a very low transaction fee at a fraction of a penny. Compared to say twenty-five or fifty dollars on Ethereum or Bitcoin, uh, so a lot of of decentralized finance assets and non-fungible tokens and all have settled on Solana instead of on Ethereum uh, due to the much better transaction fees. But even there, uh, I was doing reporting for U.S. News, one of the places I write, and I spoke with a the crypto investor and expert. Uh, who said that Solana essentially is little more than a glorified database, uh, that it was <laughs> basically all their computers are in one place and you're essentially just putting all the transactions in an Oracle spreadsheet, more or less, uh, which is not what people think of when they think of crypto. Uh, but you've got kind of a problem where if you use crypto for how it was designed with uh, not being traceable and with the mining proof of work, then everything's too expensive, uh, both in terms of monetary and the environmental damage where you see Bitcoin's using so much power compared to whole world's countries. Uh, but if you switch to these lighter crypto crypto tokens, the ones that use the proof of stake uh, mining uh, protocols, then then you lose all of the, the supposed advantages of crypto in the first place. Uh, fascinating chart that I saw on public blockchains, the portion of them that is owned by insiders, which is the, the development team, the company that runs them and the uh, venture capitalists, you see these big, big crypto projects like Binance, 50% controlled by insiders, Polkadot, 33% controlled by insiders, Flow, 58%, Blockstack, 41%, Internet Computer, 39%, Avalanche, 42%, Solana, 48%. I could go on. It's most of them. There's only a few that are 10% or less. And so they say, oh, it's decentralized. It's the future of finance. We're making Web3. It's giving everyone access, democratizing everything. All these buzzwords. I could give you buzzwords for an hour. And yet you look and it's as centralized as anything in the traditional finance world. You look at a JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs and the insiders there actually own less of their stock than uh, than in these new crypto tokens where the insiders own half of the project and then they, with a straight face, say, oh, we're democratizing finance and letting the little guy win. It's like, no, even even if your project takes off, which most crypto projects don't, uh, even if your project takes off, it will be insiders getting rich and the general public making a little bit of money. Uh, and then Web3 in itself is kind of a meme. Uh, there's a fascinating... Uh, 
forget his name. I saw a video on CoffeeZilla on YouTube. If you uh, want to look it up, a guy uh, essentially stole all the NFTs out there. He uh, he, he downloaded all the NFTs and put it in an archive. But the funny thing, uh, reporters, people were calling up and wanting to see all the NFTs. And then when he gave them the database, the database is actually a bunch of hyperlinks because and hardly anyone realizes this, but uh, the NFT... When you buy an NFT, uh, I'm using air quotes here, you can't see me, but uh, when you buy an NFT, you're buying the hyperlink that gives you the address to where the picture is held. But most of these pictures are actually just on the internet, like they're on Flickr, Imgur, uh, just hosted on Amazon Web Services or whatnot. And so <laughs> if you buy one of these $500,000 NFTs, you're, you're essentially buying a hyperlink to find a picture that's on the public internet. What does that mean? It means that there's no permanency. If someone stops paying their Amazon Web Services bill, then your your NFT disappeared because all you own is a link to where on the internet it's held. You might ask, why isn't the actual picture itself held on, on the blockchain? Why isn't it in Web 3.0? Uh, because every time you click on anything in Web 3.0, anything at all, anytime you click at something, you want to look at something, uh, there's a transaction fee. You're you're using the blockchain, and when you use the blockchain, you have to pay to use it. That's how, that's how things go. So like go on something like OpenSea, where they host NFTs and go browsing, and, and you'll see that virtually everything is held on the public internet. So Web 2.0, it's not even Web 3.0. So it's kind of, uh, I don't want to ramble too much there, but it just gives you a sense of where where things are the the gulf between the story and the reality in crypto and just how much of the economy right now is kind of a meme economy and these tradable assets where people think they're buying a something real with developers and a bright future and there's really very little there uh, so what lessons would i say that we've gotten from the meme economy this year uh, uh i'll start with GameTop because uh, that one was public i wrote about it in 2020 saying that the stock was a bad investment and clearly I was wrong. Uh, that was a terrible call on my part. So I always like to take responsibility for those things. I said to short the stock at seven and I ultimately had to cover at $10. So significant loss on my part. Uh, but what I will say in terms of that case was I figured out that the game had changed quickly. I respected my stop loss and then I left GameStop alone. Uh, as the trading adage goes, it's okay to be wrong. It's not okay to stay wrong. So when you figure out that, that something's wrong with your thesis, like I was looking at GameStop, and I'm like, they're losing $500 million a year. They've only got a few hundred million dollars left. They already don't have inventory in their stores. Like they're so desperate to keep the lights on that, hey, this company's going bankrupt. And then I guess they're not going bankrupt because the meme community literally changed the the outlook for the company is by buying up so much of the stocks, they led the company to issue new equity and that got rid of the bankruptcy risk. And so, hey, my fundamental analysis may have been right, but conditions change, take the loss, get out, and don't uh, don't keep fighting something. When If the crowd wants to go really hard in one direction, it's not my job. It's not your job to stand in the way of the crowd. Uh, and you had people like Melvin that lost the majority of their capital because they decided to say, I am right, the crowd is wrong, and I will stand on this hill and, and defend this hill. And then the crowd ran up the hill and Melvin is essentially out of the hedge fund game now. So never stay with a trade so long that it's going to wipe you out. Always be asking myself, asking yourself, how can this be going wrong? Am I missing something? And sometimes it's just, hey, people want to be irrational and and there's there's nothing you can do about that. Not a hundred percent of trades are going to be winners. So I got GameStop wrong initially, and then I got it right in terms of I got out of the way and let the crowd do its thing. On AMC, I was I think one of the few people on Twitter that made money from from uh, from taking a logical position on the stock. I, like I said, I sold puts when the implied volatility was too expensive, and that played out beautifully. The stock never really came close to fifteen dollars again, and so. I wrote $15 puts for $3, 20% yield for six months. Uh, do that trade over and over if it's given to me. Unfortunately, implied volatility is not as high on AMC as it once was, but hey, who knows? Maybe it will get, maybe they'll pump the stock again with the big opening numbers from the Superman movie. Uh, I think it was Superman. One of the one of those sorts of movies this weekend. Uh, 
Also, worth noting uh, that meme stocks, uh, some things that people probably didn't think were memes ended up becoming meme stocks. Upstock, uh, upstock, sorry, uh, upstart was probably the most obvious example of this recently. For those unfamiliar, it's a digital lending uh, software application that helps people make lending decisions. Stock went from $20 to $400 in a very short period of time. Uh, a famous trader went on CNBC to talk about the stock, and when people asked him, uh, like, what does the company do? Why Why do you like the company? He said, oh, I can't hear you, and he got off the call quickly. So it's like the, the leading bull who was on TV to talk about the company didn't know anything about the company, and obviously... Not surprisingly, uh, the stock has collapsed since then. Uh, but yeah, beware of when when a stock starts going up for no particular reason. Like Upstart's not particularly profitable. It's not really a good business. They're just trying to steal some business from Fair Isaac, but it's not going to work long term. But when a stock takes off like that, be, be wary. Because I saw people talking about it as if fundamentals mattered. And it was like, no, fundamentals don't matter. Like the literally the lead guy promoting the stock on TV doesn't have any the faintest idea what the company does. So that's the kind of environment, market environment that we've been in, where these momentum stocks go up for no reason at all. Or something like Peloton, where people bid it up to the moon. Uh, and so much of the discussion around Peloton was because Citron Research, a famous short selling firm, had shorted it. And then Citron, not Citron, Peloton, uh, people associated with Peloton hired uh, hired actresses to make ads making fun of Citron. And so a lot of people bought the stock on Reddit, on Wall Street Bets, uh, because they don't like Citron. And so Peloton went up a ton. And then this kind of bled into the what I'd call the real investment community that looked at Peloton and saw the stock had tripled and said, hey, are we missing this? And so they made up this huge elaborate, oh, Peloton's going to be the Apple of fitness, and made up this huge bull case that had nothing to do with reality. Like there's no, nothing in Peloton's actual like transcripts indicated that they were going to do any of the things that people on Pintoit were talking about. They just kind of were like, hey, the stock's tripled, so there must be something going on here. And people created this this elaborate vision of Peloton that didn't exist. And obviously now the stock's collapsed. Uh, I think we saw that with, with Clover, but uh, stop rambling there. Uh, 2022 outlook, will the meme stocks rebound? I don't think so, because as I laid out earlier in this talk, uh, the, I believe it was a product of the specific conditions, market conditions we had where people were bored. Uh, a lot of new people came into the market that didn't know anything about investing and therefore were were susceptible to buying stuff that we as more experienced investors wouldn't touch. And so you had a, a unique once in a generation opportunity. And I don't think you'll see that sort of mania probably until the next the next group, the people who are in middle school or high school now get old enough to have their own brokerage accounts. So maybe 2030, 2035, we'll get another uh, meme mania. But I'd say don't count on don't count on the craziness we saw last year happening again. Uh, it looks like the meme the meme assets have really collapsed. I know you probably don't uh, don't see it because the media stops talking about it once they go down. But like Dogecoin is down eighty percent. Floki, you know Shiba, you know all these crypto things have have just collapsed. The NFT market's frozen over. Most of the NFTs are down fifty seventy five percent. The Kathy stocks have have collapsed. Uh, yeah, so. And then I'll just end by saying, so if memes are going down, uh, how about shorting meme? As it turns out, there's actually a meme uh, ETF, uh, the Round Hill meme. Uh, I believe it's just called that. Yeah, the Round Hill meme, meme ETF launched last month, uh, which is often a good sign that something's ending when uh, by the time an ETF provider launches an ETF, usually whatever you're doing is about to end. Uh, but anyway, so we've got this Round Hill meme ETF uh, its top 10 holdings are nearly 50% of its assets. Here's what it owns. It owns Digital World Acquisition, which is the new Trump uh, the DWAC, which is going to be the Trump social media network. Uh, you've got Roku, Stroud, uh, CrowdStrike, Teladoc, AMC, BlackBerry, DraftKings, SoFi, Snap. So as you say, not very high quality companies. Uh, a couple of those like Roku and CrowdStrike are just kind of overvalued software stocks, uh, but a lot of them like uh, AMC and BlackBerry, uh, so far, are, are very bad companies. Uh, so would it be good to short these? Uh, I think it's actually an interesting idea to short this ETF, kind of use it as a hedge. If you have some growth investments, like maybe you own some SPACs that have fallen a lot this year, 
I don't know, stuff like C3AI or Stone Co. or stuff that got hammered. Uh, maybe you've listened to the tax loss selling episode that I did and bought some of those names and want to hedge it. I think maybe, uh, to be clear, disclosure, I have no position in this as of yet, but this might be an interesting uh, short just to go after these meme companies. Uh, for what it's worth, uh, yeah, I would be cautious about uh, shorting the DWAC in particular. I think that thing might go up again. If there's any meme stock that might work in 2022, I think it might be that one because politics is so divisive in this country so that if people just say, hey, we were going to buy this because we like former President Trump, that thing can go up a lot more. Uh, so I'd be careful about shorting that one in particular, but with an ETF, I mean, you're getting exposure to, to all of these stocks. And so if any one of them goes up, uh, it doesn't mess up your whole thesis. So. I'd point that out just kind of to tie things up as an interesting trade idea. Watch this meme ETF. I think it will underperform the market dramatically in future years. And so uh, it might be worth watching as a potential short idea. And uh, with that said, would, any questions? Would anyone like to discuss anything I've talked about? Gary, good to hear from you again. Uh, hello. Can you hear me? Absolutely. Hope you're having a great, great week and getting ready for the holidays. Uh, yeah, I'm cooking while I'm listening to you. Uh, so uh, two birds with one stone. Perfect. Um, I have a question regarding the meme stocks and whether you think it's affected how hedge funds are shorting and if that might affect the market's dynamics going forward. Absolutely, yes. I think it has. Uh, I, I know a lot of hedge fund people, analysts, and a few managers from when I worked there. And uh, quite a good network on Twitter. And yeah, most people are saying that, that they traded very differently, very differently in 2021 than they would have in prior years because they just either they lost a lot of money in January when AMC and GameStop and everything went up a bunch or just they saw some of these things go up five to five times, 10 times, like way more than anyone has thought possible. And so people that would have taken huge short positions on some of these, these very dodgy companies, they only instead maybe shorted 0.5% or 1% of their portfolio. Whereas in the past they would have shorted 5% of their portfolio. And so that allowed companies to stay at illogical valuations for longer because the hedge funds were, uh, they had the hot, uh, the hot stove syndrome where once you get burned, you don't want to go back and touch it again. I know I did that in my trading as well, that I didn't short stuff that I would have in the past, or I used very small position sizes where I would have taken bigger positions. Uh, yeah, so I think it's had a big impact on the market. Uh, it might start to normalize now because the funds that did the best this past quarter were the funds that had shorted uh, SPACs and stocks that Kathy Wood owned. Like, hedge funds will always do what's making money. So now that the these sorts of stocks are dropping. People are starting to short again, but yeah, it definitely made a huge impact on the market this year. Okay, and if if there's not as much shorting going on, does that imply that if the market drops, it could drop harder? Yes, that's right. That's a very good point. That is correct. Uh, when the market is going down, you generally the people that are the first to buy are short sellers because they have an open position. Uh, and for them, buying means that they're just closing out their position. And so this is something that uh, when you hear people saying they want to ban short selling, they don't realize. Like On the days when the market's down 4% or 5% and people are like, where are the buyers? Where are the buyers? That's where you want short sellers to step in, take their profits, close out their positions. And they're supposed to act as a damper for market volatility. And so if you eliminate the shorts from the market, then you're going to have excessive volatility on the way down because you won't have any natural buyers. Uh, I would say in the battleground stocks, the sorts of stocks I was talking about, there are still short sellers, uh, like that meme ETF I mentioned, stuff like uh, Roku and CrowdStrike and Teladoc, are, are, they have significant short positions in them, so uh, those stocks will still have people covering them, but yeah, a lot of people have, uh, I'd say in particular, nobody, absolutely nobody's willing to bet against FANG now, so if... If the technology stocks start going down, uh, that might drop a lot faster than people might think, just because there's very few people that are viewed as the only thing that's safe to own that will keep going up. And so that's when you tend to get trouble when you have a consensus. Hmm. Okay. Um, I have one follow-up. Absolutely. Um, I'm curious 
uh, with the kind of crazy implied volatility that we've seen, and I know you uh, had us uh, in the group uh, sell puts on PaySafe, mm-hmm. um, and I did some also on Technoglass. And is it, oh, nicely done. Yeah, is that new? Is, is that something? Is this just typical of normal market dynamics, or do you think that the value of options and the implied volatility is bigger now than it was in previous years? Yeah, that's that's good. Thank you for mentioning that. That's a great point. Uh, yes, in the past, uh, in the past, something like. Uh, Something like PaySafe, I probably just wouldn't have traded either way. Because, like I said, I think maybe five, something like $5, $6 is a reasonable price for the stock. And so I wouldn't have viewed it as cheap enough at $4 to say, hey, I need to own this. But uh, because the puts were so expensive, I said I don't really care where the stock price goes, if it stays at $4 or goes to $6 or whatever. Uh, because the put is so mispriced, I'm willing to sell this. Uh, and like you said, on Technoglass, I was more confident that that one would bounce at least a little bit. And so if the puts had been fairly priced, I would have just uh, bought stock. I would have said, okay, I think this stock's gone down too much because of the short seller and I, I would buy stock. But because they were giving out these huge premiums on the 1250 and 15 strike puts, uh, I was like, well, I can buy the stock and I think my risk reward is pretty good. Maybe 70% chance it bounces over the next few days and 30% chance that it doesn't. Uh, but instead I can sell these puts that are way too expensive and I've got maybe a 95% chance that that, that trade is profitable. Uh, and if I would have got a 1% yield on that trade, I wouldn't have done it. But because you're giving me a 3 5% yield over two weeks for that trade, instead of a 1% yield, then I'm going to express my opinion on the stock via the put trade instead of uh, buying the stock outright. So yeah, absolutely. There's people like me that are, they're looking at these huge implied volatilities and saying, hey, I'm just I'm just going to sell puts until market conditions change. Uh, and when they do change, then I'll go back to buying stock or I'll buy calls. Or, uh, I'm flexible. But yeah, definitely. Uh, in particular, like uh, with so much Reddit, uh, Wall Street bets money in the market, they've just been trained on, on Robinhood, buy calls, buy calls, buy calls. And when they do that, that drives the implied volatility up on all of these sorts of uh, volatile stocks and so yeah as long as the meme traders are around i think there will be great opportunities in selling puts but uh, definitely something to watch if the memes go away then the implied volatilities will go back down and we'll need to adjust strategy accordingly okay absolutely thank you yeah have a great uh, have a great christmas and new year's if we don't talk again first anyone else want to hop on All right, well, I think we've all got uh, stuff to do before the holidays, so good to call to... Oh, half day. Good to see you there. Uh, let's see. Here we go. Half day, you're up. Hello? Oh, okay. I unmuted. Um, I, um, I, I am actually surprised that you spent so much time on those meme stocks. Does that show it's very hard to make money or like invest profitably um, with normal way of investing? It's like, it's a sign of the hard times. Can I interpret that way? Uh, you're saying that be, uh, because the stock prices of AMC and GameStop have stayed elevated for so long? No, I mean because it's hard to uh, to make money the traditional way by looking at the other companies, like the ones you wrote about, even if you invest in them, or maybe they're already at a very high level. So uh, the traditional route of making money is like more or less closed or it's like hard to access so it's easier or it becomes increasingly profitable or more reward to turn to those meme stocks by analyzing what they would signify and and then try to profit of that it's like try to profit off the greater fool rather than being acting like the, the sage person <laughs> 
Right. Yeah. Okay. I understand. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Like, if you uh, let's think about it. Like, my friend who who started investing in 2020 uh, after I think he's like 35. He never invested before in his life, uh, and he starts investing. And what does he buy? He buys like airlines. He buys restaurants. He buys stuff he sees on Reddit. And uh, think about what he would see as a new investor. Like, maybe as a new investor, you read like Warren Buffett's writing. So you read the the Graham book about. Uh, uh, what's the name of it? But anyway, like it's kind of the the Bible of value investing, or you read Peter Lynch's book on buying what you know. Uh, but if you read those books today, like you try to apply these principles, like Buffett's buy a great company at a reasonable price. I mean, uh, we find some. Obviously, I spend my days looking for great companies at reasonable prices, but there certainly aren't a lot. If you're just kind of a normal person looking at the stock market, and you're looking at like Starbucks and Nike and whatever they're like these stocks are really expensive nothing really fits what buffett said if you read uh graham's book it's all about net nets buying things under book value obviously none of that exists in the u.s today you can find that overseas maybe but not in the u.s yeah and so yeah i think you make a good point it's just if people are looking at getting into investing they're going to see the traditional routes that made sense uh maybe don't make a lot of sense today and so it kind of takes on the Kind of a well, if nothing else is going to work, I might as well try buying the meme stocks because everyone else is doing it, and that seems to be working. And none of the other strategies have been as successful lately. So, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, I have a related question. Is uh, actually, I find plenty of opportunities to buy good companies at reasonable prices if you look outside of the U.S., and even within the U.S., um, there is a statistic about how there is a huge number of companies trading below the either 250-days uh, average, or like a lot of companies like trading really low, whereas a few companies, um, the fans of the world that are just like holding up the SPY. So, but... Um, the point is, I do a lot of, I look at Hong Kong stocks a lot. Um, some markets are just so chronically cheap, like Hong Kong or like some of the Latin American countries that you look at. So if you were to buy, um, if you are attracted to the that valuation gap between those countries versus the U.S. and you, you invest, Sometimes it's still not reward rewarding in the sense that those valuation gaps seems to be perennial. So that even if you buy a good company, a, a very um, cheaply relative to its peer in the US, in its local market, they're still in a lukewarm or like lackluster state for a very long time. It's particularly hard to find a good opportunity to exit. Do you do you get what I what I'm um, hinting at, or do you get the same frustration? Yeah, I think you've been. I think what you said has been totally correct. I, uh, I'd say from from the Great Financial Crisis from two thousand nine through two thousand twenty well, through two thousand twenty one. Uh, the U.S. stocks have outperformed and most other foreign markets have done poorly or very poorly. And so it's kind of 12 years where the right answer was buying the S&P 500 or in particular buying the Nasdaq. And so people are, people are very frustrated, like you said. And I think that's an appropriate response, but nothing goes on forever. Uh, the U.S. stocks outperformed from the late 1980s until 2000, and then from 2000 until 2009, U.S. stocks were terrible, whereas uh, China, uh, Southeastern Asia, Latin America, those markets went up a great deal, and I think Europe and Japan did okay, uh, and so you did not want to own the U.S. from 2000 to 2009. Uh, 2009 to 2021, the U.S. was dominant again, but there will definitely be another shift where some other market takes hold. Uh, I think we may be starting to get that now with the, the uh, now we're talking about inflation, commodities have gone up a lot. Uh, I think the, the global mood is changing. Uh, I think COVID has kind of ushered in a new environment where that's going to be a lot friendlier for particularly for countries that produce commodities and countries that have good manufacturing. So, 
China, Southeast Asia, Mexico. I think uh, it's time for a new bull market for them. The U.S. We'll see what happens. There's there's a lot of things that can change, particularly. See what happens uh, with the government if they can get any more stimulus spending, that sort of stuff. But I, I think I think a lot of countries are going to catch up over the next few years, particularly if the new inflation environment holds. And uh, if I may, final question about inflation. Um, I know Warren Buffett, the likes of Warren Buffett, they always prefer a company that's not so leveraged. Um, but in the inflation. High inflation, like world, it's it actually is good to be reasonably leveraged as long as you have the incoming revenue to pay off your debt and roll over your debt. So, um, I, this question comes to me because when I was looking at the Mexican Mexican chicken mm-hmm. company, I, I, they are huge cash pile is good, but sometimes. But I have moments where I think I wish they don't have so much cash. Either they give it to me, or they do something else with it. Of course, they 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 bought they they bought another company. So, what do you think of the view that in this high inflation, upcoming high inflation, or maybe even hyperinflation type of world, we the best company to look at? Are companies who have a reasonably high debt load, but has enough of, but but business is such that it can actually um, piggyback on the inflation backlogon to inflate away their debt and benefit from higher revenues. Yes, uh, you you're correct. Uh, yeah, I think if we're going to have high inflation for a while, the the perfect sort of company to own is uh, kind of a defensive, like a consumer staple sort of company, but one that has debt, uh, something like a Diageo or a McCormick that has three or four times debt to EBITDA. So quite a bit of debt, uh, but they can easily raise prices. Like if inflation is 10%, uh, Diageo can raise the price of whiskey 12% or 13% with no problem. And same for McCormick with selling spices and hot sauces and everything. Uh, but their debt would decrease dramatically, uh, obviously, due to, uh, I think, Diageo's debt is at 1%, and they have some 0% debt in Europe. <laughs> so uh, it's a very good environment if the, all of their, their raising prices on their tequila and everything, like 10 12% a year, and they're paying 1% on their debt. That's a very good place to be. Like you said, something like the Mexican company is probably going to underperform if we're in an inflationary environment for a long time. Uh, they do have their cash and short-term government bonds, so that will reset the higher interest rates very quickly if uh, if interest rates go up. And I believe they hold most of it in Mexican bonds. And so, if the U.S. dollar finally underperforms, which at some point it should, there might be there might be a tailwind, uh, kind of a benefit there that people aren't expecting. But yeah, I think you're right. In general, if we're going to have inflation for a while, look for companies with leverage but with uh, stable cash flows. That's yeah, that's the right play. Yeah, I'm all good. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Anyone else? All right. Well, thank you all for joining. I want to wish you and your family and loved ones a great holiday season, and we'll be talking again soon. Have a good night.